Yo, just a note. All podcasts that have to do with George Lay's The Political Mind will have the letters on the title G-L-P-M, George Lay, Political Mind. Thanks. Good morning. This is the ancient Texan on a Saturday morning. Still a little foggy from working pretty hard yesterday on my new website I'm bringing online. www.ancienttexan.com Be a while before that's ready. Um, I'll have my podcast and other stuff. Well, I'm going to do another uh, part two of Why the Mind, which is part of uh, George Lay's book, The Political Mind. And the first few chapters are reviewing brain chemistry. And then I assume we're going to get to how that affects our uh, political divides. So we, we've kind of learned that about 98% of the brain function, even the rational or decision-making process, is subconscious. Only 2% is conscious, and we have the false uh, assumption or belief that because that's what the part of our brain that we know about and are aware of, because that's, you know, we, it's kind of like we spend our time with that part of the brain or we are that part of the brain. We're the part that, you know, doing this talking right now and listening. Uh, and it's always funny that we have the I, the me concept, uh, and the brain kind of separate when they're, they're the one and the same. So this is kind of the part two of that. Uh, and I hope you read the, listen to the first part. They're marked GLM, GLPM on each talk that's about this book. So the last thing we just came up with, it should be no surprise that when ideas that our embodied brains come up with depend in large measure on the peculiarities of the human anatomy in general and on the way we are as human beings function on our planet and with each other. It's not surprising when discussed in vague abstractions, but it is remarkable in detail. Even our ideas of morality and politics are embodied in this rich way. Those ideas are created and carried out not merely by the neutral anatomy and connectivity of our brains, but also the ways we function bodily in the physical and social world. The way our body functions 
and the way we use it and interact with others. affects our morality and politics. That's a pretty big jump right there. Morality and politics are embodied ideas, not abstract ones, and they mostly function in the cognitive unconscious in what your brain is doing that you cannot see. Well, so that's another way of saying morality and politics are kind of practical and they depend on our bodily interactions and functions. Like you can think of, you know, shaking hands or making sex or passing disease or making love, whichever, however you want to say that. One is the embodiment of the mind matter for politics. There are three reasons, none of them obvious. First, what our embodied brains are doing below the level of consciousness affects our morality and our politics. That sounds like a repeat. Death politician, as well as many savvy marketeers, take advantage of our ignorance of our own minds to appeal to the subconscious level. I've always known that about marketing. Uh, I've developed a kind of a canny ability to completely turn my brain off when marketing's on. So I do that by, you know, turning to a book or reading something on my phone or otherwise disengaging. But I obviously hear it at some level. Um, second the forms of unconscious reason used in morality and politics are not arbitrary we cannot just change our moral and political worldviews at will there are patterns of moral and political thought that are determined by how we function with our bodies in both the physical and social worlds in other words, how you live affects how your mind works. And I would say a jump from that is who you live with and how they act and how the people around you affect how your mind works and your morality and your political thoughts. And third, the embodied aspects of mind, as we shall see, connect us to each other and to other living things and to the physical world. We have reached a point where our democracy is in mortal danger, as is the very livability of our planet. We can no longer put off an understanding of how the brain and the unconscious mind both contribute to these problems and how they provide solutions. Okay, we went from a big jump there from the brain and our moral and political minds to saving the planet. Sounds like a very interconnected world. 
in that statement. Hmm. However, if you believe in the 18th century view of the mind, you will think you need to do all you need to do is give people the facts and the figures and they will reach the right conclusion. I think that's uh, to me pretty obvious that people don't often reach the right conclusion. Um, I'm a scientist, engineer, mostly been in research and development of new technology most of my life. And it's a constant battle, not only with you know the group of people you're working with, but also with your own mind. Um, and not letting yourself be distracted pardon that my dogs were distracting me I was kind of perfect in the context you will not have any need to appeal to emotion. Indeed, to do so would be wrong. You will not have to speak of values, facts, and figures will suffice. That's kind of um, an example of of what's not true. <coughs> you will not have to change people's mind. Their reason should be enough. You will not have to frame the facts they speak for themselves. You just have to get the facts to them. 47 million without health care. Top 1% receiving tax breaks. No WMDs. Ice caps melting. Your opponents are not bad people. They just need to see the light. Those who won't vote your way are mostly just ignorant. They need to be told the facts. Are they too greedy or corrupt or being depraved or being duped? So this this is kind of examples of the 18th century mind thinking. But you also recognize that's the way if you listen to people talking about the other half, kind of how you talk about them. If you believe in 18th century view of the mind, you will believe something like this. And you will be dead wrong. You will be ignoring the cognitive, unconscious, unconscious, not stating your deepest values, suppressing legitimate emotions, accepting the other side's frames as if they were neutral, cowering with fear at what you might be called, and refusing to frame the facts so that they can be appreciated. You will be ineffective, in a word, wimpy. So, if you believe in the old view of the mind, it affects how you deal with other people. You think your job is to give them the facts and figures and then leave it to them to figure it out. You don't need to sell your ideas or present them in a way um, that a marketing person would present them.
To keep stating the facts and figures over and over takes endurance, and it does. It is anything but wimpy from the perspective of enlightenment reason. In other words, we just got to wear them down with the facts and figures and they'll get it all sorted out. That's kind of the current view of mostly liberals uh, and educating uh, the less educated in general Republicans. Although that's the generality that's not always true. Republicans operate under no such constraints and have a better sense of how brains and minds work. That's why they are more effective. That is a huge uh, generalization. Because there's very little understanding of a brain, there's no campaign to change brains. Indeed, the air, the very idea of changing brains sounds a little sinister to progressives. A kind of Frankenstein image comes to mind. It sounds Machiavellian to liberals, like what the Republicans do. But changing minds in a deep way always requires changing brains. Wow, that's a little... Uh, And it says, once I, you, we understand how our brains work, we'll be able to understand the previous paragraph. Okay, I'll take that on faith. That politics is very much about changing brains, and that it can be highly moral and not the least bit sinister or underhanded. Okay, it's fashionable among, among progressives to wonder why so many red state voters don't vote in their own economic interest. This is simply another symptom of 18th century rationalism, which assumes that everyone is rational and rationality means seeking self-interest. I don't have the knowledge about brains, at least yet, that this author has, but it is obvious to me that people do not do things that is in their own self-interest. They do it all the time. People are not 18th century reason machines. Real reason works differently. Reason matters, and we have to understand how it really works. Okay, we're not rational, so we got that. So now we're going to get into how we really make decisions. You are about to glimpse the operation of the political mind. We need a new, updated enlightenment. We have new wonders to discover, new dreams to dream but they require an understanding of what contemporary brain science has taught us about who we are and how we think. Okay, I'm eager to get there. A little sip of coffee. We need to embrace a deep rationality that can take account of and advantage of 
a mind that is largely unconscious, embodied, emotional, empathetic, metaphorical, and only partly universal. That's a whole mouthful. A new enlightenment would not abandon reason, but rather understand that we are using reason, embodied reason, shaped by our bodies and brains and interactions in the real world. Reason incorporating emotion structured by frames and metaphors, symbols and symbols. With conscious thought, with conscious thought shaped by the vast and invisible realm of neural circuitry not accessible to consciousness. And as a guide to our minds, especially in politics, we'll need some help from the cognitive sciences, from neuroscience, neural computation, cognitive linguistics, cognitive and developmental psychology, and so on. Okay, we're going to pull out all the stops. All the brain knowledge is going to be coming up in the future chapters. We are further need a new philosophy, a new understanding of what it means to be a human being. Wow. Of what morality is and where it comes from, of economics, religion, politics, and nature itself, and even of what science, philosophy, and mathematics really are. We'll have to expand our understanding of the great ideas, freedom, equality, fairness, progress, even happiness. And subtlest, sub, subtlest of all, we in the reality-based community will have to come to a new understanding of how we understand reality. There is a reality and we are part of it. And the way we understand reality is itself real. Okay. The brain is not neutral. It is not a general purpose device. It comes with a structure and our understanding of the world is limited to what our brains can make sense of. Some of our thought is literal framing our experience directly, but much of it is metaphorical and symbolic, structuring our experience in indirectly but no less powerfully. Structuring our experience indirectly but no less powerfully. Some of our mechanism of understandings are the same around the world, but many are not, not even in our own country and culture. Okay, this is saying, I think, that different people's brains use different metaphorical and symbolic symbols, and they think differently than we do. But we know people reach different conclusions, so it shouldn't be too surprising that they think differently. Our brains and mind work to impose specific understanding on reality. And coming to grips with that can be scary, that not everyone understands reality in the same way. Wow, that is like 
basic that fear has major political consequences since the brain mechanisms for understanding reality are mostly unconscious and understanding of understanding itself becomes a political necessity this whole chapter is about challenging what we know and it's promising that we're going to understand all these subjects better than we do right now since language is used for communicating thought our view of language must also reflect our new understanding of the nature of thought language is at once a surface phenomenon and a source of power it is a means of expressing communicating assessing and even shaping thought words are defined relative to frames and conceptual metaphors language fits reality to the extent that it fits our body and brain understanding of that reality since we all have similar bodies and brains and live in the same world it will appear in many cases that language just fits reality directly but when our understanding of reality differ that language means to us may differ as well often radically in politics that happens so often that we have to pay close attention to the use of language okay i know that um i often see and hear different meanings in something um i was gr- raised in an evangelical religion fundamentalist as a kid i was raised among hispanic um culture Um, I've lived in other countries like in in Peru for a year and a half and Australia for a year spent some time in in Europe had good good friends both in China and Denmark so I've been exposed to quite a bit different ways of thinking and I often see multiple meanings and when i hear two people talking to each other i can very often realize that they're not really even when they think they're talking to each other they're not really saying the same things because i it's like my brain can switch from different different frames of reference uh if i hear someone evangelical highly religious person talking my brain kind of flips into that mode. Uh I hear scientists talking I my brain flips into that other mode. And I I like to believe that I've got a little bit of of t- talent for listening and flipping into various modes. At least in my own head I do. And I've had some quite a few experiences to reinforce that which is beyond this chapter. Language gets its power because it is defined relative to frames, prototypes, metaphors, narratives, images and emotions. 
Part of its power comes from unconscious aspects. We are not consciously aware of all that it evokes in us, but it is there, hidden, always at work. If we hear the same language over and over, we will think more and more in terms of the frames and metaphors activated by that language. And it doesn't matter if you're negating words or questioning them. The same frames and metaphors will be activated and hence strengthened. So, if you're around people talking a certain way, like I was around fundamentalist religion and the metaphors and the way they looked at life and the frame they looked at, uh, those parts of my brain are strengthened and I'm attuned to it. Uh, my wife and I were in some kind of multi-marketing thing for a while and she was more into it than mine because the group is prim- was primarily, even though they tried to keep religion out of most of what they did, uh, Their frames of reference and the way they talked and stuff very much pulled me back into my fundamentalist roots. And it was very uncomfortable for me because it took a great deal of effort for me to get out of that world um, and to change my thinking and evolve. And, and that was helped a great deal by being a scientist and engineer. But I, I still have lapses back there. Um, and I'm obviously some mix of that, just like you're some mix of of your history. And the more varied your history, the more, you know, an alphabet soup it is inside of you. Language uses symbols. Language is a tool, an instrument, but it is the surface, not the soul of the brain. I want us to look beneath language New curtains won't save your house if the foundation is cracking. The old enlightenment view of reason is not sufficient for understanding our politics. Indeed, it gets in the way. It not only hides the real threat to our democracy, it is all too often keeps many of our most dedicated political leaders, policy expert, commentators, and social activists from being effective. To me, that's pretty obvious. If you if you think people are logical and they're reasonable creatures and that's the way you appeal to them um, and the other side is recognizing that the unconscious mind is often in control I can see how they would be effective and we would not be effective we meaning I'm I consider myself about 67% blue I know that's just I kind of pick an odd number like that to make my point um, that you know the science side of my brain Um, my social beliefs kind of push me more blue but there's still a lot of red left in me Um, 
the old enlightenment has run its course. A new enlightenment is upon us, ready or not. The first step is understanding and embracing the 21st century mind. It's the only one we've got. Okay, that's part two of the chapter, Why the Mind? From from this, we're going to go forward and the next uh, section of the book, part one, is called How the Brain Shapes the Political Mind. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of understanding my mind and I'm very interested in how it applies to politics but I think this is a lot bigger exploration and like all explorations it's more about it an exploration into ourselves and how we are and hopefully we can take and understand how we function and learn and how our mind is embedded in embodied in our body and how that affects our thinking and our morality that's pretty awesome to say that our brain being embodied and most of it being subconscious affects our morality that is like kind of earth-shattering thought for me and I don't quite have my head around it and I don't think we're supposed to right now I think it's just they've thrown the ideas out on the table now it's up to George lay here to build a case and show that all these promises he's making about uh, the mind and the brain and the body and how it all interacts in our daily worlds it's it's on his shoulders to to make the case of that um I also have done and will continue to read a lot of lot of books on brain science uh, and philosophy and poetry and I think we have to kind of integrate all the pieces together uh, and anyway I'm I'm eager to learn more and I hope some of you take the journey with me this is the ancient Texan Hoping you have a good day. Namaste. Yo, this is the ancient Texan, an earthling. Hoping we all can learn to live and play well together on this small and delicate planet we call home. May we all honor the sacred and our fellow inhabitants. Namaste.